On Wednesday evening, appearing on Fox News' Hannity, also known as the Donald Trump Show, Donald Trump dropped the R-bomb on Bill and Hillary Clinton. Hannity asked Trump, for example, I looked at the New York Times. Are they going to interview Juanita Broderick? Are they going to interview Paula Jones? Are they going to interview Kathleen Willey? In one case, it's about exposure. In another case, it's about groping and fondling and touching against a woman's will. Trump added, and rape. Hannity agreed, and rape. Well, the media lost its collective mind over this exchange. Mostly, they cannot understand why anyone would lay a glove on the first black president. Doesn't everybody love Bill, if not always consensually? A former Clinton aide told The Hill, quote, I think that people remember the booming economy under President Clinton, and they remember he led the largest expansion in American history, and experts on all sides of the aisle agree. That's why he's been so in demand for campaigns across the country in recent years. How would that ever, ever be a bad thing? Here's the answer. Hillary Clinton killed Bill Clinton's legacy, and now Trump is just dropping the final hammer. Over and over in this campaign, Hillary has been forced to throw her husband's crime legacy under the bus to appease the radical racists at Black Lives Matter. When Bill defended his crime law from BLM activists, he said, quote, you are defending the people who killed the lives you say matter. Hillary immediately threw him over, saying, quote, there were a lot of people very scared, very concerned about how high crime back in the day. Now we've got to say, okay, we have to deal with the consequences over-incarceration of people who should not have been in the criminal justice system. Hillary also tossed Bill's welfare reform legacy under the bus. The bill Bill Clinton signed into law, written by the Gingrich Republicans, took millions off the welfare rolls. In April, Hillary dumped all over it. She said, quote, now we have to take a hard look at it again, especially after the Great Recession. Hillary's also preparing to toss NAFTA out the window. That was Clinton's major trade advance, opening American markets to Mexican and Canadian products and vice versa. In 2000, she said NAFTA was, quote, an inherited agreement. We didn't get everything we should have got out of it, in my opinion. In 2007, she said, quote, NAFTA was inherited by the Clinton administration. We should quit giving it away so willy-nilly. We want to be involved in the global economy, but not be played for suckers. So what exactly is that sterling Bill Clinton legacy? Hillary has already mushed it on the substance in order to avoid criticism. Now Trump is delivering the double tap to the Clinton legacy on character grounds. Now, Bill Clinton isn't as popular now as he was in 2000 when he left office. There's a reason for that. Bill Clinton governed as a moderate Republican in his second term, and it worked. And Democrats have been trying to run away from that uncomfortable truth ever since. But in order to stand up for far leftism, they've had to target and tear down every single plank of Bill Clinton's success story. If Trump had trotted out Juanita Broderick and the rape accusations back in 2000, wouldn't have done much. But it has impact now because Hillary has already damaged her own husband. Bill Clinton is no longer a weapon for the left. He's a liability. When Hillary tweets about how all sexual assault accusers deserve to be believed, everybody immediately wonders if there's a mirror anywhere near Chappaqua. When Hillary complains about income inequality, people look at Bill and his million-dollar speeches. The Democrats, not the Republicans, made Bill Clinton toxic. Now they're about to reap the whirlwind, and Donald Trump's going to grin all the way to the White House. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Exactly. Tend to demonize people who don't care about your feelings. Alrighty, so here we are. It's been a very, very busy 24 hours. Uh, I've been featured prominently at websites for no apparent reason because I am not a pro-Trump person. Maybe we'll talk about that later, or maybe we'll just ignore it because it's a terrible website. But in any case, we will start today with Donald Trump rolling out his his much ballyhood list of of. 11 conservative judges he may want to appoint to the Supreme Court. So first of all, it is important to note, Donald Trump has said, Donald Trump has said that this is not his complete list. The list may grow. The list may shrink. 
is more of a guide to the kind of judge he's going to appoint. In other words, it doesn't mean anything. It's just a, he's throwing it out there to please people like me so that we look at it and we go, yeah, those are great judges. That sounds awesome. And then later he says, well, I didn't say I was going to appoint somebody from that list. I just said it's a list, you know, like a list and like a BuzzFeed list. And, you know, I'll kind of appoint somebody who I think is good. Well, there, there's two. So here's the thing. Any promise that's made in life, any promise that's made in life is reliant on two elements. One, the content of the promise, and two, the person who's making the promise. If OJ, if you go out of town and O.J. Simpson calls you up and says, don't worry about it, I'll take care of your wife. Okay, this is a promise that you probably are not happy with because it's good, somebody's going to take care of your wife. However, if it's O.J., the promise doesn't mean quite what you think it means. Also, <laughs> also he's not really trustworthy. So Donald Trump makes a promise, right? Like, I'm going to pick somebody like the people on this list, and then we have to determine, is he telling the truth or not? So there would be two ways in which he could be telling the truth. Way number one would be Donald Trump has actually thought this through. Now, he believes in constitutional originalism. He believes in the idea that the Constitution means what it meant when it was written. Maybe he, maybe that he's, he's studied up, and now he truly believes this stuff. He's become an expert on constitutional jurisprudence, or at least he understands the Constitution well enough to care about it. That's possibility number one. Possibility number two is he just delegates out, and then he pays no attention. Once it's been delegated, he just he sticks to his guns, and that's always how it is. So first, let's dispense with possibility number one, right, that he knows what he's talking about. Donald Trump knows nothing about the Supreme Court. Okay, well, again, this isn't the end of the world. It's okay. He doesn't have to know everything about everything, but he knows nothing about the Supreme Court. I mean, this is a guy who said in open debate his number one qualification for appointing someone to the Supreme Court would be investigating and prosecuting Hillary Clinton, which is like saying that your number one qualification for a plumber is that he paints your walls, right? The Supreme Court does not do that. That's not a Supreme Court thing. That's a DOJ thing. He doesn't know the difference. He also said that judges sign bills. I, I don't know. Did, did, he, did he never even see that schoolhouse rock about how bills get passed? Like, where was he for kindergarten? But in any case, Sean Hannity uh, has Trump on, and he guides him through his list of, of nominees. And this is Pretty, it's pretty funny because when you hear Trump actually try to read the list of nominees, it's clear he's reading this now for the first time. He's never seen this list of nominees ever before in history. And, and Sean is like a, like a school teacher trying to slowly guide him through this. It's, it's like, have you ever seen The Music Man? So in the, it, at the very end of The Music Man, Robert Preston, who plays kind of this con man who's, a, who's trying to teach kids how to play music, he hasn't taught them how to, how to do anything. And miraculously, they suddenly figure out sort of how to play. Right, miraculously, and he's kind of guiding them through it slowly. That's Sean Hannity with Donald Trump. So here, here's Sean Hannity having Trump run through his list of judicial nominees or possibilities. Today was a very big day. You have a list of names. I do. And you had talked to me for a while now about releasing these names, your judicial philosophy. You said you wanted originalists. You said you wanted people like Antonin Scalia and Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. It's true. Tell us about this list of names. Well, I've been having a lot of feedback from a lot of different people, and I've had, as you know, tremendous endorsements, and I'm a conservative, and I may have different views on different things, and I think I'm extremely conservative as an example on trade, but a conservative would say I'm not because I don't necessarily believe only in free trade. You know what I believe on trade is good deals for the United States. Fair trade. Well, somebody said to me, what, do you, what is your view on trade? I said, my view is good deals for the United States. It's a very simple view. And if you can call it conservative, call it whatever you want. But so with the Number one, what is he talking about? The question was about judicial nominees, and now he's talking about trade because he thinks he understands trade. He's mistaken in that as well. Donald Trump does not understand trade. But he thinks he does, and so he's misdirecting to trade. 
You'll see Sean Hannity, basically, it's like an old vaudeville act. He, he kind of grabs a cane and yanks him off stage, like one of those hooked canes, and tries to yank him back to the topic at hand. And Trump sort of gets there, but not really well. The judges, they were saying, well, what happens if he appoints the wrong judges? And what we did, and I, I just have it, um, we just took a <laughs> list of judges. And yeah. uh, I thought what I would do is put this forward, and this would be the list that I would either choose from or pick people very close in terms of the spirit and the meaning of what they represent. Okay, and then he goes through the full list, and he misreads half a dozen of the names. I mean, like, he can't pronounce them. He doesn't know who they are. And it's clear he doesn't know who they are because one of the lists, the names on the list is Justice Don Willett. Okay, Don Willett is a justice on the Texas Supreme Court who has tweeted repeatedly about how stupid Donald Trump is. So the idea that Donald Trump would possibly nominate someone who's ever called him stupid, no. I mean, the chances that... That Don Will, if that if Trump knew who Don Willett was, that he would have nominated him or put him on this list, are the same as the chances that he put me on that list, right? I mean, then no shot whatsoever, none. Okay, so that if you want to see the ignorance continue, this is I thought the most amusing part of the interview. This is where the this is where Sean Hannity tries to feed Donald Trump the answers on constitutionalism and and originalism. Now, for those of us in the media, we've all been part of interviews where somebody is trying to get you to give a particular answer. And so they feed you the answer in the question, right? They feed you the answer in the question. And then you pick up on what they're trying to say, and then you expand upon it, right? Watch what happens when Sean Hannity tries to do this with Trump using words like originalism and constitution. It's really funny. Don Willette of Texas. Yeah, and that, that's your list. And we're going to either choose from this list or people very close to it in terms of their... So this is your judicial philosophy. Yes, you, Right. You know, one of the things I think people would question, I had interviewed you a lot during this process, and you gave me very specific things. And one of the top things I would ask you often is your judicial philosophy. And you mentioned, as I said, Scalia and Thomas. They are what we call originalists, right. constitutionalists. Correct. You are a constitutionalist. Correct. Correct. And I'm also, I want high intellect. I want great intellect. These people are all of very high, high intellect. Uh, they're pro-life. <laughs> And so that's my list. And yeah. we are going to choose from, most likely from this list, but uh, at a minimum, uh, we will keep people within this general realm. And again, I have a lot of people that are conservative that really like me, love everything I stand for, but they really would like to know my view because perhaps outside of the defense of our country, Perhaps the single most important thing the next president is going to have to do is pick Supreme Court This justices. will have an impact for generations to come. Oh, generations. <laughs> He's feeding him lines, and, and Trump can't even pick it up, right? He says, you're for the Constitution. Yep. You think that, you think that originalism is good, correct? Okay, so let me, okay, so a bit of back, a little bit of backstage in, here at the Ben Shapiro Show. So. I have a really bad habit, okay? And that habit is people talk to me and I just start ignoring them. And everybody who works with me knows that this happens and that's why everybody's laughing because what happens is somebody will ask me a question and I'm clearly not paying attention and so I just say yes, right? And this is how I signed away the deed to my firstborn child. This is, somebody asked me a question, I'm not paying attention and I just say yes. So my wife has learned, unless I repeat the question back, I'm probably not listening. Like I, she, the, the, the question never happened. It's like it never happened. So Trump, he's not even paying attention. He's just, he's doing the same thing here. He's, you're an originalist. Yeah, yep. You're an, what I would love is, and Sean would never do this, of course, because it defeats the purpose of the, of the love relationship that's been created here, is for Sean to say, define originalism. Right? And just watch as Trump looks around in panic. 
and then swivels back to 999, like Herman Cain. Right, just watch his head. Okay, so this dispenses with the idea that Trump has suddenly become a judicial scholar and that this is what he truly believes. No, he doesn't. Okay, so the other argument is it doesn't matter what he truly believes. He got the list from Heritage Foundation. He got the list from National Review or from FedSoc, Federalist Society, and now he's just going to implement it. To this, I will say, <laughs> okay, the reason that this is not true is because Donald Trump, okay, in all likelihood, the Republicans lose the Senate come November. There's about a 40% likelihood they keep the Senate. Even if they keep the Senate, they're, they're going to have a bare majority. They're not going to have 60 votes in the Senate under any circumstances. That means the Democrats will filibuster any Republican, any nominee Republicans put up who's in any way conservative. Do you think that Donald Trump is going to waste political capital on a topic he doesn't care about when he could just go out and find some cipher of a candidate and get 98 votes for it in the Senate and say, I wanted somebody with very high intellect, somebody who has well-respected. Does that sound like Donald Trump to you? Somebody who's going to fight for the judicial nominee? He doesn't care about it. He doesn't care about it. Right? And, and you're gullible. If, you, if, this is, if this is the shred of belief that you're clinging to, you're gullible. Crow, Charles Krauthammer thinks this is the, the shred of belief that people are clinging to. Here's Charles Krauthammer basically saying that. I think it'll have a dramatic effect in doing that. The one thing holding back people who've resisted supporting a Trump, or at least the major thing, is the fear of what a Clinton presidency would do to the Supreme Court and how it would change it for a generation. Now you get a list of 11 who are quite sterling. Uh, three of them clerked for Justice Thomas, two of them for Justice Scalia. The six federal judges all appointed by George W., which means they are conservative and they are relatively young. So this is a future-looking list. The only caveat is what you and I heard in the interview that will be on with Hannity tonight, where Trump said they are mo his appointee will most likely be from this list. Not going to be, but most likely. How do you interpret that? I don't know. He always leaves himself wiggle room. He says he likes to have leverage. He keeps the leverage, but what he does is to kindle a little bit of doubt. Okay, and that's exactly right. But but it doesn't matter. People are already jumping on the bandwagon. So I called into Dennis Prager's show today because he was sort of staking his claim on this. Well, now he's released the list. Okay, if you thought that Trump was stupid enough, like I say that he's dumb, okay, but he's not dumb dumb, okay? He's not the dumbest guy in the world, right? Donald Trump's like a 105, maybe 110 IQ guy, but he's not a 90 IQ guy. Donald Trump is not stupid enough that he can't find somebody, that he can't find somebody to put together a list for him. Right? He's not that dumb. Of course he's going to come up with a list. And then he'll throw it out there and he'll say, okay, here's my list. And that's basically what he did. But it doesn't matter because people who are looking for a shred to pin their hopes on, they find it and then they love it. And that's what they do. And so he'll get away with, people will say, people are looking for what they want to look for. You know, those of us who say, those of us who insist on having the most realistic view of Trump, which is that he doesn't tell the truth, which is that he is a, a narcissist who is driven solely and completely by whatever benefits Donald Trump, we have our proof, right? He already is wiggling. Within an hour of bringing out this list, he's wiggling on it. People who want to believe desperately that he's a conservative so they can feel better about going to the polls for a guy who openly caters to some of the worst people on earth, who doesn't agree with anything conservative in reality, somebody who is, who is a narcissist with dangerous tendencies. If you're looking for a reason to vote for him, I guess now you found your reason to vote for him. I guess now you feel better about yourself. But don't fool yourself. You're, you're taking a very sanguine, rosy view of Donald Trump and again, none of this is to make the case that Donald Trump will be a worse president than Hillary Clinton. My guess is probably Hillary would be a worse president than Trump. I don't know. He's, a, he's, a, he's an unpredictable force. The only consistent element of Donald Trump 
is that Donald Trump worships at the altar of Donald Trump, which is kind of scary to me. He has, you know, fascistic tendencies in terms of how he talks about violence. He's happy to cater to the worst people on earth. He doesn't have any idea about checks and balances. He could be worse than Hillary. He could, maybe he won't be worse than Hillary. But Donald Trump is not going to do all the things he says he's going to do for you. And he, in the process, he's going to pervert conservatism. I, I, when I called into Dennis Prager, he said, well, the only thing that would threaten conservatism is if Trump were a good president. And Jeremy Boring, managing editor over here, he made a great point. He said, well, that wasn't true of Herbert Hoover. Right? Hoover did a bunch of not conservative stuff, and he was a terrible president. And conservatism has been slandered with, with Herbert Hoover for literally almost 100 years. In any case, people are jumping onto the bandwagon. They feel united now. They feel good. And one of the reasons they feel good also is because Trump isn't all terrible, right? He's not 100% terrible. As I've said before, he is a turd sandwich, right? There's some bologna in the turd sandwich. To me, the taste of the turd overwhelms everything. And so I'm not really interested in eating it. But for some people, they're willing to, to swallow a little bit of turd if it means they get some bologna. So here is, so here is, here is Donald, so Donald Trump. Here's the stuff that he does that's, that's, that people like. And this is why he understands the media cycle. I'm going to explain in a minute. There are five things Trump understands about the media that a lot of people neglect about the media. And this is why Trump is able to manipulate them so well. So number one, Egypt Air. There's a flight from Greece to, from Paris to, to Egypt. And it blows up basically in the middle of the air. And it's pretty clearly a terrorist attack. Nobody is willing to say so because everybody always wants to hold their fire. Trump has no capacity. If somebody had ever given him the order, hold your fire until you see the whites of their eyes, he'd be shooting at them from three miles away. He has no capacity to hold fire. So Donald Trump tweets this out, right? And it's a tweet from Donald Trump. It says, looks like yet another terrorist attack. Airplane departed from Paris. When will we get tough, smart, and vigilant? Great hate and sickness, exclamation point. And that's how you know that Trump wrote it himself. So, it's, so the, he says this, and a lot of people go, right, it was a terrorist attack. Right, we should be tough, smart, and vigilant. Yeah, sounds good. And then there are people on the other side who, who kind of tut him, tut, tut him. So former Secretary of Defense Robert Gates comes on television, and he says this is undisciplined for him to tweet this. You have some real issues with some things that Donald Trump has said about policy. What do you make of this, and what are your issues? One of the things that you learn fairly early when you have responsibility uh, is how often the initial reports or information you get on a situation prove to be inaccurate. And uh, with the demands of the news media and so on, there's always uh, pressure to immediately react uh, before you know really what's going on. And uh, that's, a, that's a discipline a lot of politicians, frankly, don't have, um, at least until they have responsibility. Okay, so he's irresponsible. And you know what? No one cares. No one, no one cares. Because the bottom line is that Trump said something that needed to be said it was radical Muslim terrorists. We all know it was radical Muslim terrorists. And he said it before anybody else. So this is lesson number one that Trump understands about the media. So there are five lessons Trump understands about the media. Lesson number one, diagnosis is all that matters. It's all that matters. So he doesn't have any solution there, right? Tough, smart, and vigilant. I'm sure people all over the world are going, oh, well, God, I wish I had thought of that. Tough and smart and also vigilant? Oh, if only that had occurred to... I can't believe it. Now, now that he says it, it seems so obvious to be tough and smart and vigilant. Okay, so, but he gets credit for it because he was the first one out of the gate saying it was a terrorist attack. So the diagnosis is right. It doesn't matter what the actual solution is. It doesn't matter what is actually prescribed as the solution. And Trump is great at this. He's great at diagnosis. He's done diagnosis on every issue, right? The economy stinks. Yes, that's true. The economy stinks. Your way of solving it is to destroy it, but sure, that's great. The, our foreign policy is disaster area. 
yes, that's true. Your way of solving that is to hand it over to Putin, but the diagnosis is correct, right? Our social policy is in shambles, right? But your solution is to hand over bathrooms to the federal and state government. Yeah, but, but your diagnosis is correct. So his diagnosis is good. And in the media, diagnosis is all that matters because we're all looking for Nostradamus, right? We're all looking for the guy who's going to predict the future or say the things no one else is willing to say. Okay, that's lesson number one Trump knows about the media, and this is how he controls the media cycle. Lesson number two, if you violate taboos, it drives the media cycle. So Trump puts out his list of, of judges, right? And he gets a lot of attention. Yay, Trump's done something conservative. Woo. Okay, in the same interview in which he says to Sean Hannity that that list is a guide and it may grow, meaning that the list is meaningless, doesn't mean anything. In the same interview where he says that, he drops the R-bomb on the Clintons, right? He says that, that Bill Clinton has committed rape. And so here is, here is Donald Trump talking about rapey, rapey Bill Clinton. Okay, what Clinton's done. What about what Clinton's done? How big an issue should that be in the campaign? For example, I, I looked at the New York Times. Are they going to interview Juanita Broderick? Are they going to interview Paula Jones? Are they going to interview Kathleen Willey? In one case, it's about exposure. In another case, it's about groping and fondling and touching against a woman's will. And rape. And rape. Should and that big be? settlements, massive settlements. $850,000 to Paula Jones. lots of other things. And impeachment for lying. Smearing, yeah. besmirchment and of women. And losing your law license. You know, he lost his law license, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, couldn't practice law. And you don't read about this on Clinton. Okay, rapey, rapey, McRape, rape. Okay, so, um, so it's good. He brought it up. Okay, good. Yay. As I've said, this should have always been a line of attack for the for the Republicans against Captain McRape and his and his wife, first mate McRape. It's it's. It, I'm glad that that he did this. What this also did by by throwing this out there is it obscured the fact that he'd already started walking back his his judiciary list. So he understands how the headline works. The headline works. You you throw out something that's against a taboo. And you get a new headline. In this case, he violated a taboo that shouldn't exist. Don't speak truth about the Clintons. Sometimes he just violates taboos for the sake of violating taboos to change the news cycle. So when he was having a not great news cycle a week and a half ago, suddenly there's some sort of story about how he's his own PR spokesperson, right? It's a taboo, but it's a mild taboo, so nobody cares, and it's mostly just funny. And so he understands how the news cycle works. That's why the headlines that Trump generates seem to outpace our ability to respond to them. Because the minute we're responding, he's already moving on to the next headline. He's already moving on to the next headline, and the coverage of him is, is just too great. The third thing that Trump relies on and knows is that everybody hates the media. Nobody trusts the media, and we don't trust the media for a very good reason. He would go on in that quote, by the way, to specifically rip on George Stephanopoulos and the media for protecting the Clintons, and he's right, and he's especially right when you have folks like Andrea Mitchell over at, at MSNBC, right, to doing to saying, saying what Andrea Mitchell says, right? She says that she says that this rape accusation isn't real. In another case, it's about groping and fondling and touching against a woman's will. And rape. And rape. Donald Trump using that word unprompted during an interview last night with Fox News' Sean Hannity, bringing up a discredited and long-denied accusation against former President Bill Clinton, dating back to 1978 when he was Arkansas Attorney General. Late last night, the Clinton campaign responded in a statement that read, Trump is doing what he does best, attacking when he feels wounded and dragging the American people through the mud for his own gain. If that's the kind of campaign he wants to run, that's his choice. Okay, no, two things here. One, Andrea Mitchell says it's discredited. No, it isn't. Juanita Broderick made the accusation. She sticks by the accusation. That's number one. Number two, how terrible are the Clintons at this? And particularly Hillary. How bad is Hillary Clinton at this? I mean, truly awful, right? I mean, she comes back with, 
well, this is just dragging us all through the mud. Her proper response should be, Donald Trump should watch himself on women, considering his ex-wife, Ivana, accused him in actual court proceedings of pushing her onto a bed and raping her violently. Right? That would pretty much end this conversation. Then we'd be done for the, with the conversation because then it would be, you know, rapey McRapey and, and first mate McRapey against rape, raper McRapist. Right? And then it would just be all rape all the time. And it would be wonderful last level of hell in this campaign. But in any case, Trump understands that nobody trusts the media. And so when he says things, he can say whatever he wants. He also understands that the media have no attention span whatsoever. Right? The media have no attention span whatsoever. So... The fact that they have no attention span means that he can shift the headline at will, and, and that's exactly what he did. So the first four lessons, diagnosis is all that matters. Violating taboos drives the media cycle. Nobody trusts the media, and the media have no attention span. Final lesson, what Trump likes to do, and he's taking advantage of it in spades in this campaign, is he says something that's eminently false. And you'll, you'll see him say some things now that are eminently false. He says some things that are just not true. And then... Nobody challenges him. Instead, what they do is they have somebody on from the other side. So there's this idea in the media that there's no such thing as truth and falsehood. There's just perspectives, right? There's just perspectives. So when Michelle Field says, Corey Lewandowski grabbed my arm, and Donald Trump says, no, he didn't, and then there's tape that shows he did, nobody just says to Trump, but there's tape. Instead, it's, why don't you tell us your story, Mr. Trump? Or why don't you tell us your story, Corey? It's never, but there's tape, right? And the same thing is true. When, when Trump says, after years and years of, of saying openly that, he, may, that he, he mimicked his own PR man for purposes of a story, then nobody just says to him, but Mr. Trump, you admitted it in a court proceeding. Why are you lying now? Nobody actually just says that to him. They just kind of present it to him, and then he presents his side, and it's just two sides. And in, in, a, in a situation where there are two sides, most people tend to go, eh, there's probably truth to both. That's how people tend to, tend to act. So Trump takes advantage of all of this. Sometimes it's great because he's taking advantage of it to hit the bad guys like, like Hillary Clinton. Sometimes it's not so great. So Donald Trump said in that same interview with Sean Hannity, the same time he's saying that he believes in constitutionalism and, the, and originalism, he says he might sue the New York Times over a piece where they criticize his treatment of women. When you're in politics, it is a deceiving, it's really a pretty rough profession. And I will say this, the political press... Worse than anything else is the political I've got person to take a dishonesty. Break. Exit question. Would you consider suing them? Well, they're talking to us right now, so we'll see what happens. All but right, we'll they know. They, they, I think the Times actually, look, they got caught in a very bad situation. Okay, so now, now I guess that, that he says that he's going to sue the New York Times. Yeah, that's someone I trust with our, our First Amendment rights. I think this is going to be someone who really protects us on the First Amendment. Jeff Bezos at Amazon, he, we, we spoke about this earlier this week. You know, Donald Trump doesn't like Jeff Bezos because he owns the Washington Post, and the Washington Post is assigning 20 reporters to cover Trump. So Trump said that he would use the power of the federal government to quash Jeff Bezos by going after Amazon on antitrust. Here's Jeff Bezos answering that. Uh, back in February, uh, Donald Trump said this about Amazon. Believe me, if I become president, oh, do they have problems. They're going to have such problems. How do you react to that? <laughs> well... You know, my initial reaction uh, to, to something like that is to take it very lightly. Um, but, you know, when, if you reflect on it in the context of what I've just been saying, uh, my view is that's not an appropriate way for a presidential candidate to behave. Okay, it, yes, that's true. But nobody cares because Donald Trump understands how the media cycle works. That happened a long time ago. It was at least three days ago. And so we've been through at least two more news cycles 
since all of that. Okay, other silly things that Trump says that have gotten obscured. So yesterday, he said, he said this yesterday, okay? This is the guy who's saying we have to be tough, smart, and vigilant against terrorism. Here's Donald Trump talking about what we should have done in the Middle East after the attacks of 9-11 is on Hannity. We've spent $4 trillion plus in the Middle East. We're in worse shape now than we were 15 years ago. 15 years ago, if we wouldn't have done anything, we would have been much better. You wouldn't have had the migration. You would have had a couple of dictators, killers. They call them strong men. They can call them whatever they want. And they were good at one thing, killing terrorists. And right now, you look at Iraq, that's like Harvard for terrorism. Okay, so he says we shouldn't have done, we shouldn't have done anything in the Middle East after 9-11. Presumably, we should have left. Who are these strongmen who are good at killing terrorists in Afghanistan? I missed that part. The part where the Taliban ran the country and provided a safe haven for Osama bin Laden? I missed that part. And the part where, this is such a myth, by the way. Saddam Hussein was great at killing terrorists. Saddam Hussein funded terrorism. He funded terrorism. But, you know, it doesn't matter because Donald Trump, that, that wasn't the headline. If he just generates 100 headlines a day, then how can you pay attention to any one of them? What this does generate is a fair bit of confusion among Trump defenders. So there are a bunch of people who are having trouble defending Trump. All they can keep shouting over and over is, well, at least he's not Hillary. I agree. At least he's not Hillary. That doesn't go as far as it does for you, because I think that he's going to do significantly more damage to the conservative movement. And I think that he has fascistic tendencies. But uh, at least he's not Hillary. Okay, but that puts you in the awkward position. All these people who say, we can stand apart from Trump and yet back Trump. We can stand apart from him and yet support him. It's a lot harder than it sounds, gang. It's a lot harder than it sounds. And what you're seeing is people sucked into Trump's orbit, now having to defend him from all of the terrible things that his followers do and that he does and pretend that these things don't exist. And that, that's the part that's very frustrating to me is, again, I've said at this point ad nauseum that I understand and buy the argument that Trump is the second least, least bad option. He's the, he's the second worst option, that, that, he's, that, that he's better than Hillary, but he's still a, a terrible person and a bad crap show. I, I buy that. But what's happening now is people have to get themselves all, all juiced up for the election. And so that means they have to talk Trump up. And so what you end up with is situations like this. Here's a Trump spokeswoman on CNN trying to explain. Amy Holmes is the woman in the center. She's a conservative. The woman on the right is the spokesperson for Donald Trump. She's wearing the Rick Perry patented smart glasses. Uh, and, uh, and she is being interviewed by Ashley Banfield. She's being asked. Donald Trump said that he would, that he would meet with Kim Jong-un. Right, the dictator of North Korea, or at least have calls with him. Watch as this lady just, this is, it, it's a hard job defending Trump. I'm sorry that there are those of you who have decided to sign on for this, but here, here it is. Kim executed his uncle. He, he, he executed his aunt. He executed his military chief. He executed his vice premier. Um, what was Mr. Trump trying to say, Healy? Well, I think top line, you know, Mr. Trump's point is that he wants to keep an open dialogue and repair relationships with world leaders. But what was he trying to say in January at his campaign rally? Well, I'm not going to speculate what he meant specifically by those points, but generally speaking, you know, he wants to have an open dialogue to repair relationships with leaders throughout the world. I know, but uh, Carol, I think I can answer that question. Okay. I think Donald Trump was trying to project strength. He has said similarly, you know, uh, he's complimented Vladimir Putin in similar terms. Uh, I could answer Donald Trump's question, which is how does a guy that young get to be leader of a, a closed country called the Hermit Kingdom? It's called dynasty and it's called tyranny and, <laughs> and it's called murdering your opponents. That's the simple answer. But I think that what Donald Trump was trying to do was uh, sort of sound like a strong man himself. I don't like it. Uh, I, I hope that he refines his point of view. 
Yeah, and I'm just, well, Keely, you can't um, give us any more guidance on this. You're the, you are the senior press representative for Mr. Trump. I am, exactly. And what I'm telling you is that top line, you know, his, one of his biggest goals is to repair relationships with leaders throughout the world. Okay, then. Um, Amy, <laughs> um, yes. the, Clinton camp, the Clinton camp fired back that um, Okay, so it Donald continues a lot. I mean, this goes on for like Kim a full five. We don't have to play the rest so, of it. So this goes on for like a full five minutes with this, with this gal trying desperately to spin stupid things that Donald Trump is saying. And that's what this campaign is going to be. It's going to be him tossing out little tidbits, like Scooby Snacks from Scooby-Doo. Right here. Here, Scooby. Scoob, here, have a Scooby Snack. And, and, and the entire conservative press is going to go, yay, roll. And they're going to eat the Scooby snack, and then they're going to be forced to defend all of the rest of Shaggy's terrible pot use. That's how this, that's how this is going to go for, for the Republican Party, and it is, it is quite ugly. Meanwhile, the Democrats are destroying themselves. So there's still that. We talked about this yesterday. Diane Feinstein, senator from California, uh, she's now come out, and she says that she's afraid that this is going to turn into 1968 all over again. Diane Feinstein is the non-stupid woman uh, senator from California. Barbara Boxer is the stupid woman senator. From California, uh, Diane Feinstein's the one with the lifeless eyes, a daughter's eyes. Here she is. I think that was the time to have sent a full-throated message to his followers that we don't do this kind of thing, and this kind of thing is antithetical to the process that set out before us. If we don't like the process, we should work to change it. For How much does it worry you that he wants to take this to the convention in July? Well, it worries me a great deal. Uh, you know, I don't want to go back to the 68 convention uh, because I worry about what it does to the electorate as a whole, and he should too. Okay, so she's worried that Bernie Sanders is going to create uh, a horrible situation, and she's being, uh, she's being interviewed by Kermit the Frog. So that's, that's, that's very <laughs> exciting. Barbara Boxer, who's the stupid woman senator from California, uh, she says that it's, it's absolutely frightening in Nevada. The Sanders people are scaring her, and she's very, very scared, but she still wants to be called Senator, not ma'am. Here's what she said. There was no way to control what was happening, and I did fear for my safety, and I fortunately had a lot of security around me, and it's true. Uh, the only thing close to that is when uh, Bush v. Gore and I went down to uh, Tallahassee, Florida, to speak outside the courthouse door when they were recounting ballots, Newt Gingrich had sent a bunch of people over there to boo me down, and I was able to actually uh, talk to them and quieted them down. And so I've never really had anything like this happen. Now I did call Senator. Bernie. I did call Bernie a couple of times, and he did phone me back last night. And you back. He was very distressed um, about it, and it was a very warm conversation. And I told him, um, he expressed shock that his people would do it. I okay, did tell so, him. Okay, so this, this all went best. by the wayside, by the way. This, this whole, we were, we, that, that Bernie and I had a conversation. Bernie was not happy with any of this. And the extreme left in the Democratic Party, the people who believe all the same things Hillary believes, but think that she's too corrupt to carry it out, they think that, that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the head of the, the DNC, should basically be out of a job. Van Jones, who is a very radical guy, is the green czar in President Obama's idiotic administration. Uh, and a guy with whom I once had a very odd conversation in a CNN green room, actually. Uh, he actually compared the cops in the United States to Hamas, which was weird. Um, but Van Jones, he says that, that Debbie Wasserman Schultz should, uh, should step down and that, that she's, he wishes that Reince Priebus were, were in charge of the Democratic Party. 
think you have a leadership failure, possibly in both wings of the party. You are the and, first and, person and, to say that in the last two hours I've and, been on TV. You, you may have a leadership failure in both wings of the party, and yeah. Debbie, who should be the umpire, who should be the marriage counselor, is coming in harder for Hillary Clinton than she is for herself. That is malpractice. I wish Reince Priebus was my party chair. He did a better job of handling the Trump situation than I've seen my party chair handle this situation. I'm ashamed to say that. Yeah, I said it. <laughs> I love the mic drop at the end. Yeah, I said it. Okay, so there is chaos within the Democratic Party as well. As I mentioned yesterday, chaos is what happens when hopes are disappointed. And when your hopes in government fall short, as they always will, everyone will be disappointed. Unfortunately, the human tendency is to react to that disappointment, not by saying, okay, give me my money and my power back. It's to say, who is the nearest guy I can channel my energy and money and feelings into? And that person will take us to the promised land. That does not bode well for the future. Okay, a couple of, one thing I like, then some things that I hate, and then some mailbag. So, things that I like. My father and I wrote this musical together. This is the second musical that we, uh, we quasi wrote one musical together. We wrote a second musical together uh, called Reality Check. We put it up at the Odyssey Theater out here in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's a lot of fun. And so there's one number that I'll show you a part of one number. This is when there's, it's ba the, the premise of the show is that there are these five people who knew each other in high school, and now it's, five years later or six years later and they're all sort of and they're all sort of coming together again at an unemployment office none of them have a job they're all losers it's like what friends actually would be like in today's economy right they don't have nice apartments instead what they have is is unemployment and lost love and so this this guy who you're about to see in this number this is my favorite number in the show uh, this guy's his name is Edward and he was a basketball star in high school and he just never made it big nothing happened with him uh, but he still thinks that he's a hot guy. He still thinks that he's cool and treats women as absolutely disposable. And uh, and he's been having an, uh, an affair. He's, he's, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend with one of the girls in the show. Uh, and she takes off because she realizes that he's empty. And here's his response. Well, now it is time for whatever comes next. <clears throat> I don't need anybody to eat with me, walk with me, meet with me, talk with me. I don't need someone weighing me down. I don't want to hear your problems. I don't need anybody to give with me, joke with me, live with me, croak with me. If you think I'm your lifeline, you'll drown. Don't try the guilt, don't try the tears. I'm immune and it leaves me numb. I'm just a jock, so all of you think I'm dumb. Well, I got the numbers to prove I'm the studliest. I don't need anybody to grab a bite, share a drink, start a fight, make me think. Only so many hours in a day. Don't waste mine eating and walking and meeting and talking or watching you wrinkle with age and decay. Anybody to groan with you, sigh with you, moan with you, cry with you. Don't you think I've got better to do? Take your runny nose and get out. Complaining <laughs> of fights with mom, fights with dad, lover that needs set ought to have lips sealed tightly with glue. Don't try the guilt, don't try the tears. I'm immune and it leaves me cold. Come back when you're a hundred and ten years old. You should have time then to figure it out yourself. 
So okay, that's uh, so the, the, it's it's uh, you know it's it's a fun musical, um, and uh, we've been trying to get it up in, in, on some uh, on some campuses. So if there are students who are into musical theater and you're and something you want to do, you should give us a, an email, and we can send you the score and the whole deal, and we'd be happy to license it to you. But it's it, it is fun. So that that's why when I talk about musical theater, my dad writes musical theater. Um, and there, there's a bunch of clever numbers in it. It's it's really a, a fun show. Okay. Some time for some things that I hate. So Hillary Clinton is a pathological liar. So we've got two patho- pathological liars fighting each other. There's a poll out today from Rasmussen shows that Trump is up five on Hillary Clinton, 42 to 37. The reason this poll is not very meaningful is because 42 to 37, add up the numbers, that's only 79% of the American public. So where's the other 21%? Who knows? So that, so the, the final results will not look like that. There's also a Fox News poll shows Trump up 48, 45 on Hillary Clinton, that one also has a problem. It oversamples Republicans by about 5%, but it's a close race. It's a close race. And what the Fox News poll shows is that 57% of Americans think that Hillary think that Donald Trump is untrustworthy. 66% think Hillary Clinton is untrustworthy. Nobody trusts any of these people. The reason they don't trust these people is because Hillary is a liar. This is, this is a clip from a 13-minute tape of like every lie Hillary Clinton has told in the past few years, and, uh, and it's, pretty, it's pretty astonishing. You're against same-sex marriage, now you're for it. You defended President Obama's immigration policies, now you say they're too harsh. You supported his trade deal dozens of times. You even called it the gold standard. Now, suddenly, last week, you're against it. Will you say anything to get elected? Well, actually, I have been very consistent over the course of my entire life. I have always fought for the same values and principles. Do you think New York State should recognize gay marriage? No. No. Okay. I believe that marriage is not just a bond, but a sacred bond between a man and a woman. I have uh, not uh, supported same-sex marriage. I have supported civil partnerships and uh, contractual relationships. I support marriage for lesbian and gay couples. I support it personally (laughs) and as a matter of policy and law. So you're saying your opinion on gay marriage changed? you changed your mind. <laughs> you know, I really, I have to say, I think you are um, being just, very persistent, but you are playing with my words and playing with what is such an issue. I'm just trying to clarify issue. so I can understand. No, I don't think you are trying to clarify. <laughs> I think you're trying to say that, you know, I used to be uh, opposed and now I'm in favor and I did it for political reasons. And that's just flat wrong. So let me just state what I feel like you are implying and repudiate it. I have a strong record. I have a great commitment to this issue, and okay, I am so, proud so you can of see. what I mean, I've this, done this goes and on the progress. For, for 13 minutes, and she is. She's just a terrible, terrible pathological liar. That's what I hate most about this election is that everybody is willing to overlook the lies of their own side so long as it allows them access to power. That's gross to me. Okay, time for some mailbag. So, as always, folks, the new deal is if you subscribe at dailywire.com to the podcast, you get top billing in the mailbag and you are most likely to be selected for the mailbag. Okay, Christian writes, Hello, Mr. Shapiro. I wanted to take some time to send you a thank you for being the voice of reason. Well, thank you. I happen to be a black guy from East St. Louis, and I also happen to be graduating with a degree in mechanical engineering in 24 hours. My question to you is how can we go about changing not just this community, this is the black community, but communities all over the country with self-destructive cultures, much like the one in urban, low-income black communities? How can we encourage people to want to make a better life, life for themselves? Okay, so first of all, the fact that you are a Christian, uh, and, and he is, he talks about his religiosity, uh, is, is, I think, important. I think a re- restoration of religious principles and values in minority communities would be a good first step. 
I also think that we need to stop pandering to minority communities by pretending that all values are of equal merit. They are not. And I think most people in the minority community actually understand this. I think black people are not stupid, so they should be able to get the fact, and I think they do get the fact, that marriage is better for children than single motherhood. I think they've been bred into a culture that is a welfare culture created by the federal government and reinforced by black leadership that has suggested that this is all just a big invention of the white patriarchy, when in reality there are certain decisions you make in life that are better for you and certain decisions you make in life that are worse. Now, with all that said, I do think businesses should be going into inner city communities and trying to recruit people to have jobs outside those communities. I think that, that educational organizations should be making overtures to minority communities and saying things that are true, trying to hook people up with jobs, trying to give them access to things outside of this, this very cloistered area where there isn't enough business and there is high unemployment and drug use. You know, th these things, I think, would be, would be a better solution than the pretend political correctness uh, that, the, that the left likes to leverage, where they pretend that all the problems in the black community are white people's fault. Hey, Dane writes, DC or Marvel? I know sometimes you talk about comics, I'm a DC Comics person. I want to know if you like DC or Marvel. Who's your favorite superhero and why? Okay, as I've said many times before, I am, in fact, a DC guy. Uh, I'm not a huge Marvel fan. It's a little bit too light and fluffy for me. Although Marvel, some of their late comics have been pretty good, actually. Um, but uh, as far as who, who's my favorite superhero, uh, I'm always in a constant battle between Batman and Superman. My heart is, uh, is with Batman. Um, although I, I like the original Batman who killed people. I don't like the, the Batman who's trying to save the Joker all the time, and his mark of morality is saving psychopathic criminals who routinely escape from prison after five minutes inside. Uh, that's why I was Team Punisher in the Daredevil series. Okay, Vin says, what are the top three worst effects of Hillary winning? Okay, the Supreme Court obviously is the, is the worst effect, and that has impact on religious freedom and free speech, and it has impact on the Second Amendment. That would be the worst effect. The second worst effect would be her continuing to cripple the military which is something certainly that she would do. And the third worst effect would be her attempts to raise taxes and destroy the economy, which, again, she would do. Michael says, what are liberal democratic podcasts that I could listen to? I desire to not be polarized and want to hear multiple points of view. Do you have any response, response about, do you know any responsible Democrats who are not flaming bags of dog poop? Um, so, yes, there are responsible Democrats who are not flaming bags of dog poop. The problem is they feel alienated from their party right now. So Dave Rubin is somebody who used to be a Democrat. Uh, he's kind of moving over now. Uh, Dave Rubin does a really interesting podcast with a lot of interviews, very thoughtful. Um, I'm trying to think who else, on, who else on the left is kind of worthwhile listening to. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts, is the truth, um, because I don't think most of them are very good. But I'll, let me get back to you on that one after having done some research. Jacob writes about convention of states. With everything in America going insane, do you believe it is time for a convention of states to try to stop the madness of more and more federal overreach? The answer is yes, a convention of states would be great. All that requires is a certain percentage of the states to call for a convention. You don't need congressional approval. And then, presumably, the amendments that are approved by the convention of states go back to the states for ratification. And Jake says, does the poll showing that the majority of U.S. voters would like an independent to run third party change your analysis that a third party candidate has little to no chance? It doesn't change my analysis for a very simple reason. It's easy to say, I support generic X. It's very difficult to say, I support a particular candidate with a particular name and a particular platform. As I explained earlier this week, it's, it's much more attractive always to say, I support generic Republican over Hillary Clinton, or I support generic Democrat over Donald Trump. Much harder to say, I, I support Trump over Clinton or Clinton over Trump. Grace writes, uh, long letter, let's see, let's get to the, here's the meat. I guess I would like to sh you to shed some light on what the Jewish big picture is. For Christians... 
Christ is coming back and God's kingdom is growing on earth. For Islam, it's taking over and killing everyone who won't convert. That's certainly radical Islam and, and the practice of Sharia states. For Judaism, it seems quite exclusive. I looked at a few Jewish American synagogues and they said, if you weren't born a Jew, it wasn't the place for you. The Jews are the chosen people of God. I understand the exclusivity. So what is the final picture for your faith? So how does the, how does the story end? The story ends with the Messiah coming. The Messiah is not, in fact, a God. Uh, he's not immortal. The Messiah is just a guy. And, and that guy is tasked with certain things like reestablishing the Davidic dynasty in Israel uh, and, and creating a more peaceful world with safety and security. There are some Jews who think, by the way, that the Messiah has basically already come, and that's what ushered in the, the creation of, of the state of Israel. We say a prayer every Sabbath in which we talk about how Israel is the first flowering of our redemption, meaning it, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the beginning of the, the Messianic age. It's a pretty common view in the, Jew, in the Orthodox Jewish community. As far as people who are not Jewish, right? the idea is, first of all, Judaism is a religion that believes you don't have to be Jewish to go to heaven. You have to fulfill seven basic commandments. And there are things that most people do already, like don't commit idolatry, no adultery, uh, no eating the flesh of a living animal, establish courts of law, and no kidnapping. Like they're very basic things. Uh, don't kill anybody. Right? These are all these are all basic things. So in the end, basically everybody leaves the Jews alone and understands that the Jews have something valuable to contribute to the world, and they come back to the Judaic God. Right. So that's so that's why a lot of people think we're we're kind of nearing that age. Although there is such a thing that Jews talk about called Chavle Mashiach, the birth pangs of of the Messiah, and that's when things get really really dark. Uh, and, uh, and so every time things get dark in Jewish history, people say, okay, this is the birth pangs of, of the Messiah. A lot of people think that was the Holocaust and the beginning of the Messianic age was the creation of the state of Israel arising from that. And Drew writes, sitting the election out, do you really think it's the best move to sit this one out? I understand Trumpsters will blame Never Trump for everything, especially if there's a third-party candidate. However, if Trump or Hillary get elected, there's no telling what will even be left to save in 2020. I feel you sitting it out is discouraging given the stakes of the election. It seems you want to sit it out so you can't be wrong when Donald or Hillary inevitably fail as president, instead of doing anything and everything you can to keep them both out. No, I would love to do everything I can to keep them both out. I just don't know what third-party candidate would actually succeed, because we haven't had one ever before who has. You know, I'm, if, if so, as I've said before, if somebody who was running, I, I think a third-party candidacy, given what we know about the evidence, would be very difficult. That said, if somebody runs third-party who I like, I will absolutely vote third-party for that person. Right now, I'm more focused on, on what we would like to call remnant politics, keeping the remnant uh, of conservatism alive in spite of Trump and in spite of Hillary so that we can rebuild and then hopefully in 2020 come back with somebody who's not a, a narcissistic, buffoon totalitarian. Joseph writes, what's your son's name? I follow your podcast. I must have missed it. His name is Gabriel. Thank you for asking. Uh, it means the uh, God is my strength. We always try to pick names that have a meaning. Uh, Joseph writes about Barbara Boxer. I was wondering who you'll be voting for the U.S. Senate seat. Barbara Boxer is vacating. There are so many candidates. Uh, the Republican, I think that uh, Tom Del Beccaro is the one who's running for that seat. So Tom Del Beccaro is, is fine and dandy. Unfortunately, Kamala Harris or Kamala Harris or, or whatever her name is, uh, is probably going to win that Senate seat and then run for president, which is meh. Okay, Scott has a couple of questions really quickly. One, do you believe the hypersexualization of our society was, is planned by the left to allow the state to mold our children as how to easily control them, do you believe Alinsky socialists are to blame? So I think that there are a lot of people who went along because you say you can put your genitals anywhere without any consequence, and most people are cool with that. Um, but I think that the people who designed it, yes, I think the people who designed it felt like the easiest way to tear down the society was to tear down the family and to tear down traditional structures. Also, there are a bunch of soft leftists who think it's unfair that people 
that there should be social stigma against any type of activity people want to engage in. Not even governmental stigma, social stigma. Uh, and therefore, they attempt to alleviate the social stigma by giving government benefits to people for, for, doing, uh, for doing promiscuous things. Uh, second, also, has Milo yet apologized for the nasty things he said about the birth of your baby? No, <laughs> you're a silly person. Okay, Cassidy, okay, actually, let's do, um, let's see. Oh, for Cassidy, this is, this is a quick one. So could you recommend any books that shed light on why Europe is failing? Mark Stein has a really good book called America Alone. You can check that out. Robbie writes, Heaven and Hell. What is your view on heaven and hell? I've looked up orthodox beliefs. I can't seem to find a clear answer on what Jews believe regard to life after death. So the quick answer is Jews don't believe in everlasting hell. What we believe is basically that God gave you a soul. He gave Hitler a soul. Everybody got a soul when, when the souls were handed out. And then you spend your life making decisions that dirty the soul and sin against the soul and sin against God. And what, what hell basically is, is almost like Christian purgatory. It's you being purged of your sins in front of God. So... You're basically sat down and shown a movie of all the bad things that you did. And, you're, and now you know an ultimate truth because you've been reunited with God. And you realize, oh, that was unbelievably stupid and terrible. I can't believe I did that. Uh, and that's the cleansing process. And then your soul is reunited with God. That's sort of the, the very short answer. There are a bunch of different views about this Kabbalistically. There's a lot of uh, debate about it. You know, that's the one that I tend to think makes most sense, just on a, on a practical level. But again, one of the problems with discussions about heaven and hell is not a lot of people have been there and back, so it's, it's, it's really difficult to, to say. The evidence shows X. So that's, a, uh, so that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that's the story. Okay, final note. Somebody just wrote me that when I talked about the Thug Life Ben Shapiro videos, that I didn't put a, a blunt in my mouth. It's a joint. He says, we can tell you don't smoke weed. Okay, thank you. <laughs> thank, you for the, thank you for the correction. Indeed, I do not smoke weed, and, uh, and I appreciate, the, uh, I appreciate the, the referendum. Well, that's the end of the week. We finally reached it. Um, as always, at the end of these weeks, I used to say don't ruin things while I'm away, but it's too late. You ruined it. So we'll be back on Monday for more bread and circuses as the Republic crumbles. And if that's not depressing enough for you, well, show up on Monday, gang. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second. First, Pure Talk believes in American values and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving. 